Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I am Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. We are back with a continuation of our last episode where we began interviewing Dr. David Embrick. Dr. Embrick has very kindly returned to talk to us again. He is a professor of sociology, also joint appointed in the Department of Africana Studies at the University of Connecticut. Dr. Embrick, thank you so much for being back with us again. Thank you for having me. You bet. And so I want to get into the discussion of white public space because that's at the front of my brain right now. But um, it's at the front of my mind because I've just been reading this paper that is titled Anthropology as White Public Space. Oh, I'm an uh, anthropologist. Oh, and yeah. I'm, Let's talk about that. You know, I'm thinking a lot about academia as as broadly speaking, white public space, but also my own discipline. And, and part of this is that Eric and I are writing this overview chapter about race and anthropology. And um, one of the things I'm trying to sort of bring to the front is the ways in which the discipline itself has been so structured over time around whiteness that it's systematically excluded the perspectives of non-white peoples, even though we've sort of tried to reconcile our not so pleasant history with race and science that we've been talking about on this podcast, we've never really redressed the fact that it's a white public space. And I thought that that was a really useful frame for thinking about exclusion in my discipline. And it's also something that you've written a lot about. And I know it's very germane to your work right yeah. now, David. Could you talk more about the like the yeah. museum's work that you've done? Well, what do we mean by white public space, first of all? Oh, okay, um, yeah. well, I mean, I, I think it's more than just the space itself, right? I mean, it's, it's place, it's space, it's environment. Who has had historical control over deciding and who doesn't belong really belong in in that space and and how we how we talk and how we think and the logics and how we sort of go about doing research for example there's a great book um mm -hmm. it's a it's actually an edited book by Takufu Zuberi and Eduardo Bonilla Silva called uh, white methods white logic or white logic white methods and it's a, it's a compilation of chapters by scholars that talk about sort of in academia in general is white so the idea that our methods right, or the correct methods, the only methods, because they're neutral ways of sort of getting at an answer, is white. The way that we talk, right, our grammar is white. The way that we think logistically about things uh, is centered on whiteness. Even the way that we talk to one another about things that we do on, on an everyday basis is sort of bound in whiteness. Um, think about, you know, when you go to a movie, right, and and you watch a movie and, and there's a tendency, not for all of us, but some of us talk about we're going to see a black movie. Nobody goes out and says, we're going to see a white movie. That, that's a real movie, right? Anything else is otherized as that's a black movie. That's a Latino movie. That's a, that's a LGBTQ movie, right? Those are different things. And so, so I think the white space is sort of steeped in all these logics that kind of exclude other histories. The work that I do now, I haven't done a lot of work in white spaces per se. There's, there's actually a lot of folks, uh, Wendy Moore, who's at a Texas A&M University, Eli Anderson, Yale University has done a lot on white spaces. What we wanted to do was we wanted to look at um, sort of these unique spaces, right? Spaces within spaces that were particular, that were exclusive to whites. And so we looked at museums because it's a, you know, museums are colonial projects. Um, and it was really by happenstance. I basically, uh, I, was, I was doing this project uh, when I was in Loyola University, Chicago, and I would go to the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, and I would go down to the basement and they have a, you know, if you're a members, there's a members lounge and it has free coffee and tea and Wi-Fi and I can grade papers and, you know, students can't find me. <laughs> you know, 
get frustrated with the papers, I would look at art and I'd be like, oh yeah, right? <laughs> that sounds amazing. Oh, it, it, it was amazing. It's an amazing space, and I, you know, then, then so many started. A lot of things started clicking to me as I started to look around and see, you know, who actually visits the museum on a regular basis, and not only that, what are the racial mechanisms that are in place to keep it sort of exclusive to a certain clientele, right? And so I asked, uh, you know, some colleagues of mine to join me in this, and, and we started a three-year ethnography to sort of look at what racial mechanisms kept it exclusive, and it was everything from the placement of the Art Institute itself, right? I mean, it's on the Gold Coast. And um, there used to be a time in that museum's history in which you can go in by donations. Over the course of time, that has changed. So the free days are now on Thursdays from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. And there's no way, like working class folks can't attend. And certainly, you know, I mean, it excludes a whole group of people that's not going to pay $40 to park to get in and you have to yeah. wait in line because you have to prove, right? I mean, if you don't have an ID, you're not going to get in. So homeless are out. And then you wait in line mm-hmm. for 30 minutes to an hour for a two-hour window. You know, those were the type of racial mechanisms. But we, but we had others. There was policing the body. We saw lots of incidents in, in terms of who was actually policed, who was followed around a lot, who was asked to step back from a painting and who was allowed to, you know, almost put their faces right up to the painting, right? I mean, you're looking at a painting of pointillism or something like that. It makes sense. You want to look at the dots. And, and so you put your face up there. But we saw lots of instances where white folks were doing it and they were let alone. And you would have, uh, you know, black folks or brown folks doing the same thing, but they may be a little bit further away. They may be behind the lines and yet still they were told to step back. And so the, the being made to feel very uncomfortable as if you don't belong there. This is not your space, right? And then the work of art itself, like what art, you know, is portrayed, right? The idea of the space being a safe haven where the dominant group can come in there and say, you know, it makes sense, right, um, that I belong to the more civilized so-called races, uh, especially in a time where some of the media and politicians are portraying that, you know, the world is getting taken over slowly by minorities. Watch out, right? The peril of, mm. the, of immigrants and immigration and stuff like that. You can go into the sanctuary, this white sanctuary, to make you feel better, but also to sort of, you know, not be accosted by all of these folks, right? But it's also class-based. It's not just race, right? I mean, working-class people are also excluded from the space. It's kind of a prime example of where we began with the idea of institutional racism, right? Like, this museum is an institution that is doing this. And I, I mean, I guess the detachment of local tax dollars from things like museums also means that those institutions are going to go after people that have lots of money and power already just to keep their doors open, which means that the free days where people who wouldn't be able to afford it might be able to go in, there are probably going to be fewer and fewer of those. Mm. I mean, Art Institute of Chicago for sure is often touted by either the mayor of Chicago or by other officials as the city's museum, but it's really not. And we're looking at the Boston Fine Arts Museum, which has had a lot of problems yeah, recently absolutely. in terms of uh, racial profiling and, and, and policing the body as well. But they also tout themselves as like, this is the city's museum. But it's really not, right? It's really not. From everything, from from what art gets portrayed, you know, to who's allowed to come in there. I mean, even the revolving art. I mean, one of the interesting things was that there are art pieces that come in there from, from around the world, um, but what gets displayed where matters. It was a time there was this fascinating run of art 
there was these paintings of these book covers by famous authors of color, like Angela Davis, Franz Fanon, et cetera. And you couldn't find it. I mean, you, you basically mm-hmm. had the luck of the draw go in there. It was like in this on the side little alley and you go in there and, and then, you know, you go to the Irish art exhibit and it is in the top gallery and it's well lit and, and an African art is in a dead end and indigenous art is in a dead end. And then all the Greek antiquities art is in the rotunda which is a pass-through everybody has to go through it to get from any place in the museum right and you see that kind of same pattern with other museums Mm -hmm. okay so so david you mentioned one thing a moment ago when you were talking about this sort of moral panic that's being spread in the current political moment about white people being victims and being sort of like accosted by people of color and immigrants etc etc and um that made me think about the concept of reverse racism, which is something that comes up every time I teach my course about race. And you have this wonderful paper from quite a while ago now, 2013, where you and your co-author talk about how racial slurs have different and much more harmful consequences for people of color as opposed to white people in the U.S. And I loved reading that paper because it is a great concrete example of the way in which the concept of reverse racism draws what you refer to in the paper as a false parallel between a racial insult happening against a white person uh, versus a racial insult against a non-white person counting as racist. Yeah, yeah. My co-author is a a former student of mine, Casey Hendricks, who's now a professor at the University of Tennessee. Brilliant guy. But um, yeah, the concept of the false parallel is actually by Michael Schwab. It's not a concept of my own, but it certainly fits the work that we were doing here pretty well. And and this was from an earlier project that I had done looking at uh, interviewing workers in uh, in a baked goods industry in the Southwest. I want to be sort of brutally uh, honest. I mean, there are no positive stereotypes, right? There are no such thing as positive epithets. So epithets towards white people, uh, they're not equally as dangerous, but they are also dangerous. The difference is is that for most of the epithets towards white people are are class-based, right? They're designed and used by sort of upper-class whites to distance themselves from working-class whites. Mm, You mean like terms like white trash and that kind of thing? Absolutely, right? And the origins of the term are actually class-based, not really race-based, right? So we're two different systems of oppression, and then we tend to conflate the two. But if we sort of look at um, if, uh, you know, folks of color happen to use um, epithets towards whites versus whites, they're used in different manners, right? And it's about power. So, so one of the examples is when I recorded white workers in this particular set using the N-word, for example, it was always used to demean black folks, right? So it was like, I'm not going to, and then they used the N-word. I'm not, uh, don't treat me like an N. I'm not his N which basically means like, you're not going to treat me like a slave. You're not going to treat me like this. You're not going to demean me. It dehumanizes folks, right? When I recorded minorities or non-whites using the term, they always use it in reference to lack of power. So there's one instance in, in which I was talking to two route sales drivers. One was a black male, one was a Latino, um, and they were eating uh, breakfast at a restaurant. And they were talking about, they were having a conversation about their routes. In this particular business, which is sort of the, the baked goods industry business, being a route salesperson, the money that you make is uh, sales plus commission. And the commission is really important because that's where you make the bulk of your money. So the bigger your route, the more money that you're going to make, right? And so the, the two of them were actually having a conversation about how they were just really upset because the white man always, get, and they use white epithets, right? So this white man, or you insert white epithet here, was always getting the better route. So the whole 
context was really different. It wasn't about demeaning folks. It was about, mm. it was used an angry reference about how white people always get the better things, the more resources, you know, so there was an issue of power that was, that was in play. Um, the historical context of a demeaning word, because one is class-based, the other one is really all about demeaning and dehumanizing folks. It automatically mm. sort of sets someone up as not deserving respect, dignity, or even safety. So when you call a black male the N-word, right? I mean, you think about what that sort of means. You insert the stereotypes, black men is lazy, dangerous, et cetera. And, you know, when it comes to police violence, it could mean death, right? Mm. And when it comes to employ employers, it could mean mm. we're not going to give you a job, right? So there are consequences. So I think what you're saying is that the stakes are just so profoundly different when it comes to things like racial epithets that the idea of sort of reverse racism in a context like this is just, it, it just isn't a thing because it doesn't hurt a white person to have a racial epithet used against them to describe their position of power that they already have. Whereas to use a racial epithet towards a person of color reinforces their sort of dehumanized status and has potentially very serious consequences as we've seen in say police violence over the past 10 years. Yeah, especially when you compare apples and oranges, right? So trying to compare how blacks or Latinos or other groups use racial epithets towards whites versus how whites use it towards people of color, right? But but again, I want to reinforce the idea that there is consequences mm -hmm. like when whites use uh, racial epithets against other whites, right? I, I wanted to ask a, a question that I know that we're probably going to have to delete off the podcast anyway, <laughs> but just for my own sure. benefit almost. Yeah. Can I do that? Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm in a debate, and the argument that we're having is, in the end, is the more fundamental thing class or race. Mm -hmm. So his argument is that ultimately class is the defining thing, and so all other sorts of dividing lines, we can take care of those later. The most important thing we have to do right now is work on the classism. Does he know what country he lives in? <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing. So, um, and my argument is that at minimum, they're, they're co-equal classism and racism. But I think there's an argument to be made that, in fact, the more fundamental thing is racism. And if we don't work on racism first, mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter what we do about classism. That we're yeah. still going to end up with massive inequality. I mean, I, I think different scholars have different ways to sort of approach this. But the reality is that when we're talking about structural racism, we can have debates about what happens before you know, a society becomes racialized, perhaps it's class-based, but once it becomes racialized, it becomes embedded. One of the one of the best things I've read about structural racism, uh, specific to the U.S., is a book that was written in 2000, I think it was 2005, Systemic Racism by Joe Fagan. And he talked about the fact that the U.S. is a bit unique because, you know, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not just that it's the only country that has the one-drop rule and those kind of things, but that the Constitution, the Declaration, the Articles, like everything, like racism has become embedded in a very foundation. So the roots are very deep, right? So you can mm -hmm. have at it maybe dismantle um, class inequalities, but, but racism is still going to be sort of part of the system. My personal take on it is uh, I think it's fruitless for us to think about racism, classism, sexism as sort of separate systems of oppression. They're intertwined and they're intertwined in a way that it's very hard for us to sort of 
pull apart. So it's not that class is more important or racism more important, but we exist in a society that's class-based, race-based, that's sexist, et cetera, and so on and so forth. But then is the right response to just feel despair and to throw one's hands up? Because clearly, I mean, if we can't undo racism and if, if we're going to say then on top of that, you also have to undo sexism and classism at the same time, then, then, ah, we're screwed. Like there's nothing we can do about it. Or is there, or am I missing something? No, that was the 2016 election. I mean, so what can you say that, well, we can take care of this one thing at a time, or is it that they're so entangled that there isn't any way to do that? And so therefore we're all screwed. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we're all screwed. I don't want to be, I don't want to be cynical, maybe pessimistic, but not cynical. (laughs) I mean, it's the same thing when I, when I mentioned, like, it's really hard, I think, for people to still wrap their heads around separating out um, systemic institutional racism from individual prejudice. You know, we can't even have that conversation of what it looks like to dismantle Mm -hmm. institutional racism until we get to a place where we understand what it actually is. I have a lot of students that that come from the college education, very gung-ho, you know, by the time they take a racism course from me, they're very much like, you know, they've been taking these classes about the inequities built into the school and, and things like that. They're ready to throw down. You know, I tell them, I say, you know, I hope you get a job. And let's say you get a job at kindergarten or first grade or sixth grade or maybe high school. You know, what do you think is going to happen when you get that job, right? I mean, do you think you're going to have access to changing the curriculum? Well, in most places, you're not because the curriculum by <laughs> right by the independent school district. Right. You're going to have to sort of do the standard operating procedures workbook. And, and you're also the new person, right? So you don't have seniority. The, the changes that you think you're going to make probably aren't going to be able to make it. Now, I'm not saying that you can't make those changes as a large group, but as an individual, what you think is going to happen is really not going to happen. Yep. Well, I guess we should wrap it up there. I want to thank Dr. Embrick so much for being with us. That was wonderful. Yeah, that was a great talk. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I learned a great deal. Thanks so much. Thank you. So what's our plan going forward, guys? Well, next time we should be talking to Alan Goodman. He's a biological anthropologist who was the president of the American Anthropological Association when its public education project, Race, Are We So Different, was developed in 2006. Oh, yeah. This program includes the Traveling Museum exhibit, an interactive website, and educational materials, including a college textbook. Sweet. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. In the meantime, everybody better keep washing their hands. Yep, do it. I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist hiding out from the COVID virus in Northport, Alabama. You've been listening to Speaking of Race. Joe, where can you find us? Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race and on Facebook at SOR Podcast. Which everybody has to be on all the time now because of the social distancing. Exactly. Exactly.